Well, welcome back. We are here again in week five of our series called Victory, Life After the Resurrection. I was thinking about what does victory mean, so I looked up a definition for us, and victory is defined as the overcoming, overcoming of an enemy or antagonist, or the achievement of mastery or success in a struggle or an endeavor against odds or difficulties. And that's what we are here seeking to do with this series. We are seeking to overcome the enemy. We're seeking to achieve success in our struggles for the glory of Jesus. And that's why we're spending these weeks talking about the victory that we have in Christ Jesus because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he died upon the cross, because he rose from the grave, we have victory in Christ. And so we're talking about what that victory looks like for each one of us as we live out our faith. But before we dive in today, let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for your word. What a blessing it is to get to spend time each and every week together as people who believe in you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior, looking at your word that you have given to us, that you have sustained throughout the years so that we may have it here before us today. And Holy Spirit, may you guide us as we examine it. May you show us what you want us to learn from it, how you want it to impact our lives and mold and shape us to look more like you. May you use it to correct us and rebuke us where we're out of line, to bring us in line with your will, Jesus. We thank you for this time. I pray that nothing that I say would get in the way of what you wish to declare, Lord. But may your word be upheld today here in your sanctuary. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was thinking this week about the idea of failure, and I was thinking about the time or times in my life when I've failed. Now, failure is something that, admittedly, we don't really like to talk about. Like, it's not a whole lot of fun to air our failures and talk about the times we've failed, and yet it's important as well. So I'm going to share with you one of the times, and there's been a few that i failed. One of them was when I was in seminary, so part of my journey took me to Denver Theological Seminary to get my Master's of Divinity. I wanted to be well prepared to be a pastor, and so I wanted to go and study how to be a pastor. And as part of that experience, I had to go through, for me, what was the most challenging thing, which was learning two dead languages. Now, the funny thing is, I spent two and a half years learning these languages, and I can barely recall any of it, which is true for most seminary grads. But I went through Greek for two years, learning biblical Greek multiple times a week, learning how to read it and how to parse all of it and do all this stuff with it that I couldn't even tell you what it means anymore. But when it came time for my final, I took my final, and I remember my teacher calling me back in that afternoon and telling me, Jason, you didn't pass. You didn't pass your final to move on. And I remember just feeling defeated, feeling like I had failed. I had studied for that final. I had worked hours and hours in the library in the evenings just studying Greek, which just gave me a headache. I mean, I, I'd never known my mind to actually hurt until I took Greek. And I felt like a failure. I felt like everything I had worked so hard for, everything that I had invested, just was out the window so quickly because I had failed in this instance. Now, thankfully, my teacher was so kind and so gracious and could see that my track was not to become a PhD professor, but I want to be a pastor. And so she worked with me to retake my exam, 
and told me what to go home and focus on and study on so that I could retake it and hopefully pass it and continue on in my studies, which, thanks be to God, I was able to do. But I still had that experience of failure. I still have that experience of failure in my past. That's part of my story. And perhaps you can relate to that. Maybe you've experienced failure at some point in your life. Maybe you haven't. But I would imagine most of us can think back and have at least one time in our life when we feel like we failed. We feel like we didn't measure up to either our expectations or others' expectations around us. But the question when we fail becomes, what will we do with that failure? How will we handle our failure, and how will it impact our future? Will we be able to move past it and move forward and learn from it, or will that failure define who we are and cripple us moving forward? Well, this week I want to examine another one of the appearances that Jesus makes after his resurrection. And this appearance directly relates to this issue of failure and hopefully guides us forward in an understanding of how we can have victory over failure in our lives. So let's turn to John chapter 21 together. We're going to be parking there today. And we've seen here in John that Jesus has appeared to men traveling on the road to Jerusalem. We've seen him appear to Mary outside the tomb, and we've seen him appear twice behind locked doors. But this morning, we're going to see Jesus appear in a new setting to the disciples. He continually comes back to the disciples as this was his core group. This is who he invested the most time in, sought to build them up so that they could then move forward to be the church. And so John 21 is going to show us how Jesus' resurrection brings us victory over failure. So starting in verse 1, we're going to break this chapter into three pretty significant chunks and let the Scripture speak a lot for itself, and then I'll give a little bit of information about it, and then we'll see how we can apply this to our lives. But chapter 21, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. So he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciple came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And altogether there were so many that the net was not torn, though. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus had revealed himself to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So Jesus 
had met with the disciples. He had seen them before. In John's account, this is the third time, although we've taken some detours and looked at some other gospel accounts and seen some other appearances. But they've seen Jesus in his physical form already appear to them. They've seen him talk to Thomas about Thomas's doubt. And, but now the disciples are in that waiting period. They're waiting for what's next. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon them and to move forward into what Jesus has called them to do and to be. And they're waiting at the Sea of Tiberias, also known as the Sea of Galilee. Now John gives us the context of who's present here in this waiting. He lets us know that Simon Peter is there, that Nathaniel's there, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Now, this made me pause and wonder, why didn't the text just name who these two disciples are? Like, we're given a list of the disciples other places in Scripture, and yet here, John, who knows who these two are, chooses not to name them. The biblical text has an ambiguity here, and I think that these two are left purposely unnamed. I believe that it's to represent for us the anonymous and the hidden multitudes of the faithful souls. Those names who we'll never see published in human documents, whose deeds are never reported in human reports, and yet those who Jesus still chooses to manifest himself to. As surely as the other named disciples, Jesus shows up to these two unnamed disciples. In doing so, you and I can know that Jesus also manifests himself to us as well, that Jesus cares just as much for those names who we don't know as those who we know. That Jesus cares just as much for the people who are the headliners who are known throughout the world as for any of us who sit in this church who perhaps feel unknown. That Jesus' love is the same for all. So I think that's part of why John leaves these two unknown. I think it's an intentional movement of the Spirit to let us know that even the unnamed Jesus sees and cares for and loves and provides for. Well, Peter leads the disciples in going fishing in this text today, and they head out at night, which was a common time for people to go fishing during this period. The fish that were caught at night could either be used to eat the next day, or they could be sold at the market as fresh fish. And Peter's been critiqued here by some for going fishing, for uh, what appears to be a return to his previous endeavors. Peter was a fisherman when Jesus called him out of that to be a follower of Christ, to be one of his disciples. So now as Peter's waiting, he's going back to fishing, and some people critique Peter for this. Say it's Peter just returning to his old trade, perhaps out of a lack of faith. But yet, the reality is Peter had to do something. The disciples are in a waiting period that Jesus has instructed them to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. They need to be able to eat. They need to be able to have some finances. And so, to me, Peter is being a good steward of his time to spend this time fishing with the other disciples. And for those who like to fish, you probably didn't even think about that because you probably thought, what better thing to do when you're waiting and have nothing to do than to go fishing? I'm sure that John and Lois can definitely relate to that as you can always find them out fishing during the weekends. But Peter leads the disciples in going fishing in the evening and yet they catch nothing. These were experienced fishermen, people who knew what they were doing, not like if you took me out on a boat and tried to fish, you wouldn't be surprised if we didn't catch anything. But Peter would have been experienced in this, and yet they catch nothing. In the morning, Jesus appears on the shoreline, calls out to them, and asks them if they caught any fish. And they don't know that this is Jesus. But Jesus instructs them, once they say they haven't caught anything, to cast the net to the other side of the boat. 
Now, moving nets was no simple task. This wasn't easy work. In fact, it was difficult work, and yet the disciples listen to these instructions. They obey what this man on the shore tells them to do, and they move the nets from one side of the boat to the other. They are obedient to the instructions that they are given. And the result of their obedience is they catch what's later reported in the text, 153 fish. What a haul! That is so many fish that they are provided with after a night of catching nothing, just from moving the net from one side to the other. To me, that is completely a miracle in their midst. The Lord has worked a miracle for them. And it shows the Lord's provision his ability to work miracles post-resurrection as well, and his care for the disciples. Jesus cares so deeply for these men as he shows up to them time and time again to encourage them after his death and after his resurrection. As they cast their nets and they get this haul, John, who's the unnamed disciple here, John who writes this gospel, who continually refers to himself in this way as the one that Jesus loved, He recognizes first that it is Jesus on the shore. He is aware that that's Jesus and calls it out. And Peter's response is to throw on his garments and to jump into the water. He doesn't even want to wait for the boat to get finished pulling in the nets and get to the sea. He just wants to swim for Jesus. And so he jumps in and swims to shore, and the rest of the disciples follow, dragging in all the fish that they've caught. Upon arriving on shore, we see Jesus once again Show kindness to the disciples. Every time that Jesus shows up after his resurrection, it's never coming with condemnation or with conviction for how they've acted, but he comes inviting them to be with him, inviting them to continue to place their faith and their trust in who he is as the resurrected Lord and as their Savior. Upon arriving on shore this time, Jesus invites them to breakfast with him. He takes the bread that he has, He takes the fish that the disciples have caught, so he uses what they have worked for. He uses the provisions that the disciples have, and he gets them breakfast. The text tells us that the disciples were afraid to ask who this was, and yet they knew it was the Lord. Something deep within them stirred being with Jesus. I imagine like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus when they stopped at the end of their journey and Jesus ate with them and broke bread and said they knew, their eyes were open and they knew that it was Jesus with them. I imagine as they got to the shore and as they ate with Jesus, they just knew in their souls this was Jesus in their presence. And Jesus shows them kindness and hospitality and grace in this time with the disciples. The other thing that he does is he helps them move past their failures by the ways in which he engages with them. By not coming with condemnation right away, he doesn't critique them for being scared after he died or for running away in the garden when he was arrested or for hiding out when he was dead. He comes to encourage them. He comes to show them that because of his victory over death, they can live life victoriously. They don't have to live caught up in their failures of how they previously acted, but they can live in light of who Christ is and his victories. We see that Jesus isn't done with the disciples and moving them past their failures. The first failure in this text was just the simple failure of fishing. They weren't able to catch anything, and Jesus gave them victory there, but he wants to move them to a deeper understanding of victory over their failures than just the physical catching of fish. And so we see him turn his attention to Peter. If you would look with me at John 21, 15, we'll continue in the text. It 
It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This moment, this interaction between Jesus and Peter is such a gift for us, I believe. It was a gift for Peter in the moment because this was Jesus working to rehabilitate Peter from his denial of Christ the night that he was arrested. As Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and as he was taken to be put on trial, he had told Peter as they sat at the Last Supper that one who sat around the table with him would deny him that night three times and that that was Peter. That before the rooster crowed, he would have denied him three times. And Peter did. Peter, the rock, the faithful disciple, denied Jesus three times. I imagine the agony that he felt as he realized that he had denied his Lord and Savior. And yet, we do the same thing. We deny Christ at times in our life, sometimes intentionally, sometimes before we come to know Christ, we deny him. Sometimes we do it by continuing to return to our sin time and time again, rather than living in light of who Christ has called us to be. And yet, what Jesus does here in this text with Peter is he three times calls upon Peter, asking him, do you love me? And the three is intentional by Christ to the three times that Peter denied Christ. Jesus is showing him that he is restoring him, that even though Peter failed in his denial of Christ in those times, that this is not the end of his story, that this is not the end of how Christ wants to work in Peter's life, but that he wants to continue to use Peter, that he wants to move him past his failure, that Peter's failure is not the end of the story for Peter, not if he will trust Jesus and continue to faithfully follow him. And the same is true for each one of us, that even when we fall short, even when we make mistakes, even when we deny Christ, that it's not the end if we are willing to repent and to follow Christ, to continue in faith, that he will restore us as well and that he will continue to guide and lead us and use us in this life. Jesus calls Peter to action, calls him to care for those around him, to feed his sheep. He calls Peter to this position of leadership, that he will use Peter to continue to spread the gospel message of who Christ is and of the hope of Jesus Christ. Like Paul, who talks about being such a great sinner and knowing the grace of Jesus because of his being saved from that sin, I imagine Peter felt very similar. That what Peter deserved was not a position of leadership after denying Jesus, and yet that's exactly what Jesus gives him. Because God loves to use what is broken, but yet what is willing to place their faith in Christ. And so Jesus calls Peter to something greater than himself. 
He exhorts Peter to stop doubting, to not linger in the past mistakes, but to follow Christ to the greater plans that he has, to experience victory over Peter's failure. But to do this, Peter must focus upon Christ. He must be obedient to him, and he must faithfully follow him. Peter's victory will come in his giving up fully to Christ. Only then will he experience true victory over his failure. The words at the end of verse 19 may have been an invitation for Peter to follow Christ, but they are just as much an invitation for you and for me. Whatever you've done, whatever failures you've experienced, whatever shortcomings have been in your life or mistakes that you have made, Jesus invites you to follow him. With the same grace he extended to Peter and the disciples, he extends it to you as well. All you have to do is place your faith and trust in him and believe in him as your Lord and Savior to give up yourself fully to Christ. And then you will too experience victory over your failures. Let's look at the conclusion of John's gospel by picking up John chapter 21 and verse 20. It tells us Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? Well, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's how John wraps up his gospel. The imagery of if everything that were to be written about what was done, that the world could not contain the books. It's quite a unique way that John chooses to close out his gospel message here. You see, Peter has been given insight as to how his life will go, as to what his future holds as he continues to follow Christ. And as John's kind of following behind, John seems to always want to be there right in the midst of what's going on. And so even though Peter and Jesus are having this intimate moment where Jesus is restoring Peter because of his denial, John's right there kind of on the fringe waiting, trying to probably listen in, hear what Jesus is saying to Peter. And so Peter's like, well, what about John? What about him? You've told me what's going to happen to me, but what's going to happen to John? And Jesus is clear in his response to Peter that this should not be his focus. What a word for each one of us. It's so easy for us to get distracted about what's going on with our brothers or our sisters, to be able to focus on other things rather than to focus on Christ. That's what trips us up. That's what causes issues is when we're focused on others rather than to focus on Christ. In my family, I have four kids, and often we have to tell my kids, stay in your own lane, because they'll try to talk about what another kid's doing or try to interject as kind of a parental authority, like, well, what about this that someone's doing? And we just remind them, stay in your own lane. And Jesus is saying a similar thing here to Peter. Stay in your own lane, Peter. Don't worry about John. Don't worry about what John's going to do. Don't worry about if John's going to die or when he's going to die or what matter, manner he's going to die. Worry about me. Fix your eyes upon me as your Lord and Savior. 
and know that that must be your concern. Our concern need not be on others, but our focus should be on Christ alone. As we read this text, this ending of John's gospel, we can know that God is in control of our time here on earth. We don't get to pick the days that we have. We don't get to number our years on earth. We can choose how we use them to honor God and to glorify God. Some of us get more than others, but the days that we have here are given to us by the Lord. God is in control of our time, and our responsibility is that we would use it to glorify Him. John used his life to glorify God. He wrote this letter inspired by the Holy Spirit, this gospel message as a testimony to Jesus' life, to bear witness to who Jesus was, to what John had witnessed, so that others would know the truth of Jesus, the Lord and Savior, the Messiah, the one who defeated death upon the cross and rose from the grave, who is victorious over failure. This closing chapter of John's gospel gives us insight into how Jesus deals with these failures. The failures of the night fishing, the failures of betrayal, and how Jesus doesn't leave us in that failure if we follow him. But he graciously gives us victory over failure. So let's look at how we can live this out moving forward for each one of us. I think the first thing that we can do and learn from this text is to look for opportunities to allow Jesus to use you. In our text today, Jesus used the disciples. He uses them to commission them for the gospel, but he also used them to catch 153 fish. The beauty of being used by Jesus is that sometimes we can see how he wants to use us, and sometimes it's simply because we are sold out for Christ that we are used, and that he has our hearts. He is able to use them to further his kingdom. I found an anonymous poem that I wanted to read to you that I think gives a a great picture of this. The poem says, The master was searching for a vessel to use. On the shelf there were many. Which one would he choose? Take me, cried the gold one. I'm shiny and bright. I'm of great value and I do things just right. My beauty and luster will outshine the rest. And for someone like you, master, gold would be the best. Unheeding, the master passed on to the brass. It was wide-mouthed and shallow and polished like glass. Here, here, cried the vessel, I know I will do. Place me on your table for all men to view. Look at me, called the goblet of crystal so clear. My transparency shows my contents so dear. Though fragile am I, I will serve you with pride. And I'm sure I'll be happy your house to abide. The master came next to a vessel of wood. Polished and carved, it solidly stood. You may use me, dear master, the wooden bull said, but I'd rather you used me for fruit and not for bread. Then the master looked down and saw a vessel of clay. Empty and broken, it helplessly lay. No hope had the vessel that the master might choose to cleanse and make whole, to fill and to use. Ah, this is the vessel I've been hoping to find. I will mend and use it and make it all mine. I need not the vessel with pride of itself, nor the one who is narrow to sit on the shelf, nor the one who is big-mouthed and shallow and loud, nor the one who displays his contents so proud, not the one who thinks he can do all things just right, but this plain earthly vessel filled with my power and might. Then gently he lifted the vessel of clay, mended and cleansed it and filled it that day, spoke to it kindly, there's work you must do, 
just pour out to others as I pour into you. The beauty in this poem is it serves to remind us that it isn't how we look or our history or even our skills that matter in service to God. What matters is that we are willing to be used and to be filled by God for His glory. Jesus wants to use each one of us for His glory. The question is, are you willing? Are you willing to look for opportunities where He wants to use you? Are you willing to pour yourself out in volunteering and serving and sharing the time and the talents and the resources that you have and doing it to serve Jesus for His glory, not for ours? The second thing that I believe the text shows us this morning is to live in His successes rather than our failures. It can be easy to find that throughout our lives we've tried things that don't work out. Perhaps, like me, you've even failed at things. So do these failures lead us to give up or to stop trying or to move forward and learn from them? Sam McCree was a hardworking man who usually blew most of his paycheck partying. He would come home and he'd fall into bed and go to sleep looking at a crucifix hanging on the wall and he would ask God to forgive him and then live the exact same way the next weekend. And one night, he became convicted of the eventual, eventual deadly outcome towards which his life was headed. So he prayed, Lord, if you really died for me, change me and give me a will to say no. Sam woke up a new man. After nearly 25 years, Sam is still walking in the light, influencing people in upstate New York as a pastor and a master carpenter. You see, sometimes we get caught up trying to do things on our own, trying to make it happen by our own strength and continually fail. And yet we have been invited by Jesus to live in light of what he accomplished on the cross, to live in light of his victory which in turn will provide us with a victory over our failure. So we must seek to live in the success of Jesus, the freedom that he brings us on the cross, and seek to serve him. This is what will truly change our lives when we are unable to do it on our own. It's not because we are so great. It's not because we're so skilled or have the best abilities, but it's because the one we serve is greater than our failures. There's a lesson that Peter learned on the beach that morning that his past failure, his denial of Christ, would not define him. That that would not be what led him forward, but that he was forgiven. With all his other sins and all of our sins upon the cross that day when Christ died. And now it is time to live in light of that freedom on the cross as we work towards building the kingdom of God. Which should lead us to wholeheartedly Follow Jesus. Following Jesus means giving all of yourself, giving all of your time and your talents and your resources, viewing what you do in light of the kingdom of God, putting on those kingdom-colored glasses and looking at what we do through that lens of how is this living for Christ? How am I using my time for the glory of Christ? It doesn't mean that you can never do something that you enjoy that isn't volunteering at church. But how are you serving Christ with your life and with what you do? To remember that we work for Jesus. To remember that what we have is not ours, but it is his. That the money that we have is Jesus's. So we must value what it truly means to give our all to Jesus, to truly follow him, and to make our lives more about him and less about us. 
from July 26th to August 7th in 1971. Some of you probably remember this. Millions of eyes of Americans were on the Apollo 15 mission to the moon. And you may remember the astronauts David R. Scott and James B. Irwin who landed on the moon and spent 18 of their 66 hours outside of the spacecraft. They covered over 17 miles of the surface in a specialized vehicle people dubbed the moon buggy. But upon returning to Earth, James Irwin, a professed Christian believer, declared, quote, As I was returning, I realized that I am not a celebrity, but a servant. So I am here as God's servant on planet Earth to share what I have experienced, that others may know the glory of God, end quote. Most of us will never obtain the status of James B. Irwin, but all of us can have the same spirit that he possessed to seek to be a servant of God. To follow Jesus, to live in victory over failure, means to live lives recognizing that we are servants of Christ. That our purpose isn't our success, but it is His glory. So this week, as we go from here, may you rethink how you define success. May you view success not in terms of monetary value or profitability of investments or notoriety, but may you view success as glorifying your Savior who died for you, your Savior who in alone you will experience true victory over failure. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for the grace that you showed to the disciples, that same grace that you have shown to us today. Lord, may it shape our lives. May we not cheapen your grace by acknowledging it and then continuing on our own paths, but may we be shaped deeply by the grace that you have shown us. May it impact all aspects of our life. Lord, we are yours. We desire to be your vessels, to be your servants. Lord, I think of Isaiah when you ask, who should I send? Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Lord, may that be our response as well. Here we are, Lord. Send us. Here's your church, Lord. Use us. May we be a light in this community for you. May we be a place of revival here in a city that needs the hope of Christ. May we be a place of respite for those who are wounded and hurting, that they may experience the healing power of you, Jesus. And may it all be because of you and because we are willing to be used by you for your glory. So Lord, give us the strength to walk this path guide and direct us in your will. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.